This is Lisa Miller and Associates, Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. Now, here's Lisa Miller. Welcome, friends. I hope those of you listening to this podcast are safe and healthy. As the coronavirus spreads throughout this country, its impact is being felt on businesses, small and large, and on the insurance companies that insure those businesses. Unlike usual catastrophes such as hurricanes and floods, who you've heard us talk about in the past, this one is not limited to just a few contiguous states or counties. The all-encompassing question at this point, at least, remains which losses may be covered by insurance and which ones may not be. While the answer may seem simple, just read the policy, it's not that simple. We're going to help sort this out today on our program with a couple of great experts who I think you'll enjoy listening to, plus the growing call by some policyholders and lawmakers on the state and federal level in the United States that insurance companies ought to pay business interruption claims whether the policy covers it or not. On the other side, other lawmakers who understand that pandemic outbreaks are uninsured for the most part. They're pushing for a federal backstop, similar to the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act, to provide funding to help insurance companies cover these extraordinary economic losses. And last but not least, what on earth is going to happen to the insurance industry long term? Joining us today is John Burkholder, an insurance attorney who has spent most of his career outside of a courtroom specializing in risk management for private companies and governments. I had the pleasure of serving with him when he was the Deputy Insurance Commissioner in Kentucky, and he's a certified insurance examiner. He's currently a consultant with Municipal Partners, which helps local governments with all things insurance. Welcome, John. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate you having me today. Good to have you with us. And also with us is Kevin Miller. No relation to yours truly. He is a seasoned property and casualty adjuster based in Sarasota, Florida, with Velocity Claims Administration, an independent adjusting firm. And he's the former contractor with 30 years in the adjusting business. He's handled disputed claims from most of the major hurricanes during this time frame. And I appreciate you, Kevin, for joining us. Thank you, Lisa, for having me. So let's start with you, John. Normally, when there's a business interruption claim, I say normally. Um, I think sometimes we all wonder what's normal with this COVID-19 pandemic. There's usually some physical property damage required, such as from a fire or flood that directly causes the business interruption. We don't seem to have anything like that here with the coronavirus, or do we? What are your thoughts about that, John? Well, let me step back just a moment, Lisa, and say that we have direct business income And then we have contingent. And I think both could be impacted here. But today, let's focus on direct. So you're you're completely correct. A typical business income policy requires direct physical damage to a covered property caused by covered cause of loss, except as excluded. And in this case, we're not really having something like a direct cause of loss a direct cause of loss like a fire, it's really unique in that the allegations that are made across the country are that, well, 
it's because we have this virus in the air. So, John, is there a trend here? Do you see, as you look across the country and read various articles and talk with scholars about this, where do you think, you know, when you look at the terms, direct physical loss, property loss, realizing that insurance policies are all different, what are the trends that you're seeing moving through the country right now? Just a couple of them, if you could comment. This is the uniqueness of this situation. Typically, you have one particular well-defined loss, a fire, either a fire at your place or a fire next door where you can't get into your into your property. Here, it's all across the country mm-hmm. and really all across the world. And they're saying, uh, well, yeah, we, we've got extensive remediation out there. We've got extensive situation or because the civil authority shut us down. But in the traditional sense, the civil authority uh, closing someone down has a limiting factor in almost all the policies. It's typically you get th- up to three weeks and it's, it's where you cannot enter the property. Here in most cases, you can enter the property. The plaintiff's bar, the people on the other side, the claimants, are saying, well, we can't enter because the civil authority says that there's dangerous conditions in the area and that because of the latency of this uh, virus, we can't get into, uh, into our property and therefore it triggers business income coverage. Got it. Kevin, over to you. The past 30, 45 days, I know you've done nothing but talk on the phone with, you know, from Florida to Maine and from California, you know, to Louisiana. What are you hearing on the ground out there with John telling us that there are those that believe uh, the virus is causing a physical or or a property damage, if you will, and then those saying absolutely not? What are you hearing from your uh, boots on the ground? Well, to expand on what John was just speaking of, I agree. The the two elements of the claim uh, going after a, a payment for a BI claim would be the physical loss to the building and civil authority. Those are the two elements and areas which are being attacked by the plaintiff attorneys or the insureds, even if they're not represented. Uh, so the carriers... First and foremost, what I'm hearing from the carriers and adjusting firms, what they're doing is they're collecting information, documents, investigating the claim. They do it with a series of questions. For A lot of them are doing recorded statements, for example. If the insurer doesn't agree to a recorded statement, then they send them a survey or a questionnaire, I should say. And with that questionnaire, they're asking pretty much the same things they would do in the recorded statement. They want to show that they are investigating the claim. While they're doing that, immediately following the claim being filed, they're sending out the reservation of rights letters. And I won't go into, we all know what ROR letters are, um, but that is part of the process of adjusting the claim, Uh, getting recorded statements, gathering documents, collecting information. Remember, you have to be concerned about avoiding unfair claims practices or bad faith. And uh, there was a recent lawsuit coming out of the U.S. District Court in Illinois that touched on that. And I want to, besides just the regular documents, you want to ask questions, you know, how many employees did you have? Uh, Were they prevented from getting into the location of where the business uh, is transaction? And also you want to ask them at some point about their actual losses because that lawsuit uh, it's called big onion versus society insurance out of Illinois. 
it centered solely on the fact that the insurance company did not ask what their actual losses were. They were deciding on coverage. Obviously, when we investigate a claim, we're going to decide on coverage first before we even typically talk about amounts of the loss. But the point I'm trying to make is during the discovery process, the investigative process, you must or should ask for documentation about their loss. We want to avoid unfair claims practice. Makes good sense, Kevin. Seems to me where we are now is we have business owners who are suffering horribly. They are having difficulty uh, accessing federal bailout funds in some cases. They've lost employees. People are trying to get unemployment. We have people alleging that in the next few weeks we'll be in a depression. Um, Many of these small businesses are looking for relief from the federal government anything they can do. And they were hopeful, as I've spoken to many small businesses, that their insurance uh, companies would be there for them. That's the phrase that's been used. So, John, tell me what you think Congress could do to be there for these millions of small businesses. Is there, you know, we're bailing out the airlines. What else could we be doing as a nation if these claims are denied? most cases rightfully so because they never collected a premium to pay these claims from an insurance standpoint. John? First of all, and this is this is part of the problem, I think uh, our legislators don't understand that business interruption is tied to a property policy and that they there is a history of exclusions. Uh, there's a specific virus exclusion and things like that. So, they want to help, and in the, the goodness of their heart, they're looking and grasping for ways that they can assist these damaged and injured injured parties and constituents. Because uh, they're you have you have essentially the entire country screaming and saying, "Well, we need to be paid," and not under fully understanding the contract that they entered into. But they have a PREA going on. They have what's called a uh, Workplace Recovery Act that's basically a federal fund to go out and and streamline uh, the funds to a special administrator who will then uh, hand out the money, similar to what they did after 9-11 with uh, Mr. Feinberg. Uh, And then there's another one called the Business and Employee Continuity and Recovery Fund. Essentially, those are two different mechanisms, kind of like the Triple P, to get money into the hands of these people that are injured. Restaurants in particular are very vocal about this because they have a very short period of time. They'll never be able to fully recover because the meal you didn't have yesterday cannot be replaced by the meal you're going to have tomorrow. So if we have Congress stepping in, and I've read some of these proposals out there, and I'll, Kevin, I'll kick this to you. Is that the magic bullet, Kevin? You understanding what small businesses are going to need and desire as a result of COVID-19 and its devastating effects. Is that going to be enough? The short answer is no, and let me explain why. John just touched uh, briefly on the PRIA Act, uh, P-R-I-A. That's the Pandemic Risk Insurance Act of 2020 that has been brought up for possible legislation on the federal level. Uh, The PRIA Act does not address what's going on now. This is the shortfall of of this act, as opposed to what John is referring to, the two other programs or mechanisms that will get money in the hands of the insureds immediately. The PREA Act 
And I'm not going to go into all the uh, details, but basically it's a voluntary pro uh, participation program. It's to be administered by the Treasury Secretary and participating um, insurers need to include coverage for business interruption losses uh, on terms and conditions similar to business losses from events other than public health emergencies. As we all know, we've excluded coverage in the uh, in the ISO form for viruses in light of what happened in early 2000s with SARS. Um, so the PREA Act, it's a reinsurance for insurance companies, a sharing of the expenses, a reimbursement by the federal government to the participating insurers. I think uh, the one that's floating out there right now is like a 95% payout above the deductible. But the bottom line is PREA is post all of what's going on now. It, it doesn't help us here and now. I like what John spoke of. Those two programs are talking about putting money in people's hands immediately, and the insurance industry is best placed to do that. And from that, it, they can be reimbursed by the federal government. The federal government, they've worked together, both parties, both sides of the aisle, coming up with the first $2.2 trillion uh, to get money into the economy. This is another way. This will offset any litigation and prevent the litigation, I feel, from happening, which we all know has already started happening. We see the commercials. We see the carriers being served already. So, Kevin, I want to hear from you on this one. Right now, when we look at the situation and, and the status of things, first week, here we are in the first week of May, we have an insurance industry that is doing, I think, a phenomenal job of trying to explain to the public and congressional officials and others that we didn't collect premium for these policies, and it would be devastating and could potentially bankrupt this industry if we're forced to pay claims that we never anticipated and didn't factor in collecting payment for. The other side of it is the policyholders, when they hear the even the term business interruption coverage by its very title, leads those to believe that they should be entitled to be paid when their businesses were interrupted, never mind the exclusions of the policy. So, Kevin, knowing that you'll be in the middle of a lot of these claims, and then I want to hear from John, how do we reconcile the two? How, how does a company demonstrate to Congress how awful it is and yet show to their policyholders, we really want to try to help? What do they do, Kevin? All right, that's a great question. So there's two elements. Uh, what does the insurance company do facing these mass massive number of claims? And what do we do for the insured to help educate them? When you talk about the insured who's expecting payment when they hear business interruption, why aren't I getting paid? It reminds me a lot of the National Flood Insurance Program. Um, the, the flood insurance program, like every policy in the nation, in the world, has certain limitations and exclusions, just as the business interruption uh, insurance has as well. Uh, the business interruption had caveats, has caveats or exclusions, as we're all all aware of. Uh, what we can do on the insurance side, in my opinion, is, and this may be counterintuitive, hope for more claims, even if they're being denied. Because the more claims the carriers are getting on the aggregate, we can take that back to our congressional representatives and say, look, this is how big this is getting. Your PREA Act is not going to take care of it because that's for after the fact down the road. We need to do something now because the insurance industry will be turned on its heels should these BI claims be required to be paid. And we know the court's 
could rule in any way, even though the exclusion is unambiguous in the policies, most policies. And we're primarily talking about the ISO form, obviously. When you talk about some of the syndicates, there, there are some all-risk policies without the exclusion. So we need to this needs to manifest itself with action to our federal legislators, our, our representatives, to let them know we need the PREA Act now, mm -hmm. uh, some sort of payout now. And then we need to better educate our insureds and explain to them we exactly what you were saying. We haven't collected the premium for this kind of a loss. That's why we have it as, as an exclusion. And, and maybe then they will go to their congressional representatives. And between the two, we can get the system set up now with either the PREA program now or one of the aforementioned programs that John recently talked Very about. Very interesting strategy. Maybe a, a bit of a slippery slope, but I can see what you're saying. Have not only the policyholders banging on their federal legislators' doors, but have the insurance companies saying, we've got thousands of claims. You, you, you cannot leave these people hanging. John, what are your thoughts? Just to give you some perspective, there's really three types of, of businesses out there. Those that never bought the coverage, and then those that bought the coverage that it is, in fact, covered, and those that bought the coverage and it's excluded. So you're never going to have 100%. Now, the worldwide non-life general insurance premiums for 2018 was a little over $5 trillion dollars. The federal budget, that they spend a little over $4 trillion. So you're talking roughly 20 25% more than we spend in a year, the entire budget. So it, it's a huge, huge exposure out there. And I don't think that it was priced or anticipated or included in, in what, what they're going to do. Now, they have a contract. And so if it's that group of people that bought the coverage and it's not excluded, they should be paid and they should be paid promptly. But back to our previous discussion on the litigation, that's why insurance companies want it fully vetted and the plaintiff's bar, the claimants, are trying to get a deck action, a, a declaration from the court that says, this policy says X. The problem with a deck action is it's specific to those facts and circumstances of that claimant. So if Kevin didn't buy a policy, that's clear. If I bought a policy that had the exclusion, but Lisa didn't, they're going to have to litigate those claims. And it's difficult to do it in mass because remember, it's a state-regulated uh, environment now. ISO's got a lot of the continuity of coverage, so you know they've got probably what ninety percent or so, uh, Lisa, uh -huh. of of the policy forms mm -hmm. out there. Say it's say it's north of ninety percent, so you're going to be able to handle that. But there's still unique coverages. The Oceana case out of New Orleans is a Lloyd's policy. Every, almost every one of those are different. So. This has been fantastic to kind of hear the perspectives. We have a situation where a lot of the plaintiff's lawyers, those representing the, the small business owners, the policyholders, they want to uh, expedite, if you will, a way to get judges um, and justices to opine 
uh, as you say, through a deck action, a declaratory action that makes it by fiat, this is how this particular policy is going to pay out. But you're right. Those usually have to be done on an individual basis. From the policyholder standpoint, my thoughts are once you get the attorneys involved, it just seems to tie up so much, uh, you know, and nothing happens quickly. So to bring this in for a landing, we have millions of small businesses in this country. Those small businesses are hurting. No one disagrees with that. We have insurance company executives who are doing everything they can to be fair and to adjudicate the policy the way it was written. And they should not be, in my humble opinion, uh, forced to pay a claim that they never collected a premium for. It's much like you you know, when you're in a grocery store and you purchase a product and the price is $10 and the grocery store tries to charge you 20. No one wants that. That doesn't happen. So from a a claim standpoint, where Kevin is going to be on the ground adjusting these claims, working with claimants to, you know, put together their, their business cases to the insurance companies to convince them to pay it, whether it's the insurance companies themselves doing what they can to, quote, trigger coverage if they can at all possible, and whether it's Congress that's going to try to come up with a backstop, I think this conversation can be continued. Kevin, closing remarks from you, and then I'll turn it over to John before we close out the day. The takeaway for me would be to those carriers facing an avalanche of BI claims, do not just send out a denial letter right away. Investigate, gather documents, cover yourself from any unfair claims practice, inclusive of asking them what their actual loss is, even if you just collect the documents. The other thought is, although PREA is not designed to for immediate help to the American people, I think PREA should be made available now because the insurance companies are best positioned to get money out to the public as quickly as possible. They have the mechanisms and systems in place and get it paid for, reimbursed in some fashion, as John was touching on, by the U.S. government. John, closing remarks? Well, once again, let me thank you for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. I think the first thing you do is if you have a claim or you have a potential claim, find out what group you're in. Did you have the coverage? Did you have the coverage and it's excluded or is it without exclusion? The second thing is, is we have to globally come up with a solution that doesn't kill the golden Mm -hmm. goose. We need insurance now, but we also need to make sure that whatever we do, that we'll have insurance next year as well. And so I think long-term, something, uh, maybe not the the proposed PREA, but but something along there to have some long-term uh, options so that if we ever have this again, hopefully it won't be in our lives, lifetimes. But I, I think that's the approach you need to take. When you're looking at your policy, most agents are trustworthy, but if you ask an attorney, make sure they're an insurance attorney, make sure they know what they're talking about or get an independent uh, person to take a look at it, but find out where you are before you spend a lot of money on chasing something. Well put, John. I cannot thank you both enough for spending time with us this afternoon so that we can share with our listeners what may or may not happen, though we don't have a crystal ball. And and we're conducting this podcast, practicing social distancing, ensuring that all of us are are isolated so many of us in the insurance industry are accustomed to working on the run, you know, with remote access as we serve policyholders in the event of hurricanes and other natural disasters. I want all of our listeners to think about this. 
this is unlike and different than anything we've ever experienced, either as policyholders, as insurance executives, or just folks that follow business in general. You know, we're not running to go fill our cars with gas like we do for a storm. We're not sheltering in shelters. We can look no further than what New York Governor Cuomo closed in one of his March press conferences where he said, don't be reactive, be productive. And I I believe that uh, on many occasions, those that I've spoken with over the last 30 to 45 days, it's unbelievable the kind of productivity I have seen. And going forward over the next several months, we, we just have to take it one day at a time. And we have to confront this new reality This virus is not going away tomorrow. Governors can reopen these states as much as they want to, but people are still going to be hesitant because it is just so uncertain. And uncertainty, unfortunately, in the insurance industry is not a good thing or even in the business sector. Life is going to be quieter for a matter of months for us. And we're socially distanced, but uh, spiritually connected in a lot of ways. And and I hope that for each of you that you make peace with this unexpected uncertainty and that we can find a way to help our customers, help policyholders and do what we can as we move through these very uncertain times. But I would love to hear from you. You know, we have a way for you to communicate with us. Uh, you can call 850-388-8002. That's 850-388-8002 or drop me an email. My email is very simple. It's Lisa Miller at lisamillerassociates.com. Lisa Miller at lisamillerassociates.com. And today that rounds up our Florida Insurance Roundup. Two great speakers. John, thank you. Thank you. Kevin, appreciate your time today. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's a lot of fun. We appreciate our audience as usual. Uh, We get a lot of great feedback from these podcasts. And if you have suggestions or ideas um, on future podcasts, we're happy to entertain those. I'll leave you with this. I watched many of the governors throughout these past 30, 45 days, and many of them have said that working together is our best hope. And I will encourage that every time I speak with you. So until then, be safe and healthy. This has been Lisa Miller and Associates, Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. For more information on today's program, please visit us on the web at www.lisamillerassociates.com.